What I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Andrew Gold is an award-winning journalist and podcaster. His podcast, On the Edge with Andrew Gold, featured in Apple's New and Noteworthy and interviews some of the world's most controversial and sometimes inspiring figures. If you're a Louis Theroux fan, it'll be just the podcast for you. This was my first time talking to Andrew, who was in Berlin when we were recording. We discussed his encounters with difference and how his profession and beliefs intertwine. Andrew, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for having me on. Now, you're a documentary maker and you've traveled very widely, lived in a number of countries. What is it that you think motivated you into those pursuits? Um, I think a couple of things. I think maybe firstly it would be that I was just a huge Louis Theroux fan. And it's now actually boring to say it because he's become sort of stratospherically, I don't know if that's a word, um, it is huge and popular. <laughs> it's become stratospherically huge and popular. And obviously he was in the 90s as well, but it felt somehow a little bit more almost twee or different and that's a bit alternative then louis through i think in the that's 90s the word. A bit, yeah yeah that's the word he was a bit alternative in the 90s like, all of his font was in orange and his uh his, what do you call it after the programs and before the programs you know it was like retro even in the moment with the big round glasses so that was really exciting for me watching all of his stuff and i always felt like i'm quite good at talking to weird or strange people because i always found myself wanting to hang around with people who disagreed with me which i thought was a little bit different to to other people who stuck together um i found myself very young thinking for example at like uh football games right i remember being like 15 years old and uh people would sing things from the stands that was like arsene wenger is a pedophile because i went to tottenham and right. even when i was very young i remember thinking well, like that can't be right. I don't want to be caught up in this tribe of people. What about the other people? They must think he's not a pedophile. So, you know, so, th- so I always thought I'm so good. You were interested in people who were different from you, who thought differently, who thought weirdly. Yeah. And I always thought there must be another side to it as well. There must be, you know, so I was interested to know why do they think so differently from me? And there could be nothing, no better way of finding that out than you know, going abroad, learning different languages, because you get to actually meet those people, how they really are, and trying to actually, instead of judge them, and instead of put myself above them somehow, to actually see who they are and understand them. And why did you want to understand them? Was that so that you could... I think if I really think about it uh, on, on a deeper level, I suppose there's that thing, you know, that, that a lot of performers have, where you want people to like you, like every performer of any kind has that in some way. I think every every person has that. You want people to like you, so you start to adjust to how they are. And I found myself to be very much a mimico in that sense, not necessarily of their voice, but mannerisms. Um, and I, in, in someone's company, I started to see things through their eyes rather than mine. So it was some form of empathy, I suppose, at at the you know the the risk of losing my own identity, which as I got older, I started to come through more. But I was 
the main thing for me whenever I was in anyone's company was to understand them and for them to feel comfortable with me. So I wanted to, yeah, understand different things. And then as you get older, you might be at university or whatever, and you'll hear people get very angry about a certain you know, political stance and different people. And I never felt that they were different and on a, on a different, apart from Nazis, of course, but I never felt that they were a, a different person from me. I just thought they've had different experiences from me. And I well, would that's actually, your Nazi, surely by extension, if you believe that. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. But I, I don't want to sort of publicly be defending Nazis. But but yeah, <laughs> I, I think we could get into it. If, if I was really, really honest with myself and with you, I, I would like to try and understand the Nazis. I mean, I'm, I live in Germany and probably one issue once the one thing i take issue with is the law that holocaust denial is illegal and i've come from a jewish family so you know nobody should be more offended than i am by holocaust denial but the the very fact of putting these people in prison and arresting them it doesn't make sense to me um and i would like to i'd love to sit down with a nazi i don't feel i don't want to punch a nazi i want to sit down with a nazi and and understand why what led them to think that way and that's not because you want Nazis to like you, obviously. So it's a bit different from how you started on this, uh, on this, uh, yeah. Well, if on I'm, this if journey. I'm totally honest, and it's actually something I'm ashamed of, I probably would want the Nazi to like me, and and right. that's that's how far it goes, and that's something that I'm I'm only realizing now as I say it. If if you know what I mean. I think you're right that a lot of performers feel that way. I mean, you know, everyone knows that if you stand up in front of a crowd and you're the sort of person who wants to speak to them or entertain them, you, you, you there's a sort of nutrition that their their approbation of the crowd will give you. Yeah. Um, that's certainly true. But you seem to be saying more than that. You want to empathise with people. You want to understand them, and you think that by getting to know them in this way, you'll what you'll become you'll become a better person yourself. You'll become more understanding, more. Yeah, there, there is some of that. There, there is this idea of sort of getting knowledge from everywhere instead of just one place, which is something that's criticized a lot in our society today, this idea of the bubbles that we're all in. When I started, I I, I remember Louis Theroux saying, again, I don't want to go on about him too much because it's going to sound sycophantic, but I remember <laughs> him saying um, that he liked to do right-wing people rather than left-wing. Uh, not necessarily because not necessarily because they were more dangerous or less dangerous or whatever it might be, but because they were more fun and interesting. Um, and I felt that early on as well. I loved being around. I made a film about abortion. And I think a lot of people would want to make that film by saying, like, look how awful it is, what is happening, and all of that, you know, that that people, that women are not able to terminate a pregnancy in in you know difficult situations. For me, the exciting thing aside from that was to hang around with a woman called the crazy baby lady. She's known mm. as that in Argentina. Her name's Mariana Rodriguez Varela. She happens to be the daughter of uh, a man who was very close to a dictator in the 1980s in Argentina. Um, and it was just fascinating for me to be around this person, um, spend a lot of time in her presence, pick up her kids on the school run, get to really know her at home. And she was lovely. She was so nice. And yet she was going out on the street. And I don't know if you remember uh, that documentary about the Westboro Baptist Church as the, yeah. the woman, Shirley, is the matriarch. Uh, so this crazy baby lady is very similar. So she's going out and screaming on the streets. She has these plastic little fetuses that she's, you know, she's making people's yeah. lives a misery. But but I, I got to know her to a point of thinking, well, she's doing it because she thinks she's fighting for good. And that, to me, is fascinating. There is nothing more fascinating than, than that. So... So yeah, what did that I, I, tell you? I mean, what did you, you know, did, how did that change your beliefs in light of that encounter? 
I think it, it changed me a lot. Even, I mean, that was two years ago, and I'm very much uh, in the pro-choice camp. Um, but I've been moving more and more towards the idea that journalism is not supposed to be activism. And I think that is something that's happening so much. Uh, and I think it can be activism. I'm not totally against that idea. But I don't know. I think as you age, you're supposed to maybe change your ideas about things. Um, and I was so pro-choice, and I still am. But I couldn't understand the, the other side before. I don't think the other side is what she thinks it is. And I, I know that's patronizing to her. I think she, she thinks she is fighting because of God, because of something or other. I think the real reason is because she's part of a group of people who feel that their, their culture, which is you know uh, wealthy Catholic aristocracy in Argentina, is under threat. Um, and everything about their culture is under threat. And it's just it just gave me an insight. I suppose in the same way you might like to read a book, you know? It's like reading a book, hanging around with someone like that gave me experience I could never get from somebody in my social group. It sounds like you think that we can, or at least you can and do, um, sort of enjoy people in a way. And that's sort of <laughs> what you're saying, isn't it? You're, you're, you've just compared people like with, with a book or with you know, a pursuit of some, of some sort. Are you sort of saying you get a, you have a, an aesthetic appreciation for different people, people who are different from you? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And and it's happening more as I get you older. Enjoy them. Yeah. You know, when you're a teenager, you're so, uh, you're more entrenched on one side and it tends to be on a very sort of left wing, uh, side and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's good to be like that, um, in many ways. Um, and I used to, for example, there's some, well, I'll just say my stepmother, for example, uh, I used to find her views very difficult. I like any generational gap, you know, and I found her views to be horrible. And I still don't agree with a lot of stuff. Not that she's very conservative or anything, but as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate that she's completely bonkers. And it's actually a lot of fun to be around her. And if everybody in the world were just espousing stuff that maybe I might think or say, and other people might think and say, how boring is that? So I think enjoy is a really good word. That that's what it is. You get to sort of enjoy and suck up that that energy that they have that is different and challenging and fun. I think this might sound like quite a controversial belief to lots of people because I mean a lot of people um, are quite happy saying they enjoy music, they get pleasure from it, or they enjoy you know good novels or Louis through documentaries. Um, and a lot of people would say they were interested in other people and they want to know more about their views and so on. But to get a sort of, you know, connoisseur's pleasure out of <laughs> other people in this way, that's, that's I think, even though a lot of people may actually believe that, that you've just expressed for themselves if they think about it, I think it's it's quite rare to be quite so honest about it. And mm. do, you, do you think there are any problems in it? I mean, this, like you say, this woman that you're enjoying is causing a lot of human misery and heartache and pain. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you're not calling it out, are you? You're, you're instead you're enjoying her. Well, no. Well, so, so this document. What? Okay, so this this documentary hasn't come out because uh, we're trying to sell it at the moment. People aren't really looking for stuff about abortion in Argentina for whatever reason. Right. <laughs> so it's not top of the BBC's priorities. But if we can't sell it in the next six months or so, we'll just put it out. So, but but I am very critical of her, and we actually have a big argument at the end of the at the end of the uh, documentary because she believes I betrayed her trust. I told her I was going to go into it very 
neutrally with a neutral mind and what i meant by that i was maybe sort of uh, kidding myself a bit with a bit of cognitive bias because i believed i was but obviously i wasn't i was going in there with a very pro-choice stance which i still have and as it went on and in that moment the pro-choice side lost it was uh, abortion was not legalized and i met her the next day and she was very pleased with herself and i really pushed back and i was pretty pissed off actually on behalf of the pro-choice side I, I couldn't believe the danger that she was causing so i think it's right to call these people out particularly if you've got a documentary that you think potentially you know many people will see you need to call these people out um but i if i'm completely honest like of course i enjoyed her company um i think she's has awful views or really dreadful views but i enjoyed her company she she thought i betrayed her to such an extent that it's two years later i messaged the other day and she she won't speak to me she won't reply to me she's she's livid because i involved her father and i said to her you know some people on the pro-choice side would say that the daughter of somebody very high up in the government that was known for having disappeared babies stolen from families and you know give given them to rich people basically and then dropped people in the ocean from helicopters. I mean, it's awful the things they did. They still haven't reunited um, a lot of the, the the babies who are now adults with their parents and grandparents and things. They're known as the desaparecidos, the disappeared. It's awful. And I said to her, like, surely, surely somebody so close to that should not be the face of the pro-life campaign. And she she said, which is fair enough, she said, but that's my father, it's not me. And I said, yes, but you are very close with him. You defend him. And it's, it's, you know, it's one thing for you to be pro-life, but to be the face of it, it's, it sounds hypocritical to me. And she was, she was gutted that I'd brought up her father, who she loved very much in, in that way. I guess this is a problem that you must face as a documentary maker, which is sort of a very um, specific moral question that it's interesting to hear the different ways that you resolve it and that you go back and forth in your own mind obviously in resolving it is that on the one hand you know you're it's a bit like an anthropologist you're 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 living with people and you're you're participating in their lives and this is i guess in in in, in the way in which your work is like louis throughs or john ronson's for example you know mm. you're, you're with these people and at the same time you're sort of exposing them and that's a that that is an ethical sort of something to think about isn't it you there's no probably do you resolve it or do you just live with attention it's really difficult because I am, as as we discussed earlier, I'm somebody who needs people to like me, even if they have right. abhorrent views. So we spent uh, my director Lucy De Cruz and I with this this film. We spent and the other things we're, we're extra close with these people because I go and film these without a production company or without the BBC behind it or whatever, and then try to sell them afterwards, which is not how most documentaries are made particularly presenter-led ones it's very rare but it's just because i firstly it's impossible to sell them in the first place to get them commissioned it's impossible to get yeah. them commissioned uh but even so it's nice to go without that expectation of a tv channel behind you that's going to expect you to act and work in certain ways to have a big uh, team we go in just two of us or maybe three of us and it's very intimate so you become even closer with these people so we were so close with mariana and Lucy and um, you know a couple of other people that we, in our team became very close with her, despite they were very pro-choice. The rest of my crew it was a team of women, four women who were very pro-choice, but we all became quite close with her, and we all started saying, Lucy and I in particular, in the days leading up to the last interview, we're going to have to have that interview, and she's going to hate us, and she's going to hate me, and that was really hard. And it was really hard afterwards when she was messaging. She messaged the next day and she said to me, I get sent photos every day from pro-choices of their abort aborted fetuses. I get sent pictures of that every day. 
I get sent the most horrible stuff, but nothing has been more of a betrayal or hurtful than what you did to me. And that was uh, really hard to take, and it's hard to take um, now. There's a there's a sense in which you, when you're as as you're a professional documentary maker living with people and embedded with them, mm. you've got to have a sort of unresolved tension between both displaying people and gaining their confidence. And you've obviously rationalised that in lots of ways and expressed in lots of ways, different ways, and come to terms with the, as it were, the sort of the paradox of it. Mm. I just wondered: is that something that is is a, is because that's your work um, or the, you know, the pursuit that you've chosen, is that a professional value for you, a set of professional beliefs, almost like just you know, confined to that aspect of your life? Or do you think that there are, the approach that you take to those things is also part of your, the rest of your life? Uh, no, it's, yeah, it's utterly professional life. It's utterly uh, professional. Yeah, just because, and, and I think a lot of people will say this, it's like when you have the camera on you, it just changes everything and you're able to do things. I mean, I'm quite... A mild-mannered person. I will avoid confrontation at all costs. Usually, I'm very much about uh, if I go into an argument with anyone, you know, a girlfriend, a parent, whatever it might be. My first thought is we both have to cede ground. It's the only way I think you can resolve an argument is if both of you cede ground. Even if you don't really, you have to sort of trick yourself into doing that. So I can't do that. But you put a camera on me, and I start thinking, you know it's a very strange place to be in actually and there are times when you're interviewing people who who you know we've talked about right-wing people but what about you know victims uh of of different kinds of things that you're interviewing and it's really complicated what's going on in your brain and i sit there trying to analyze what i'm feeling in that moment because somebody's telling me something incredibly hurtful and horrible and sad about their lives. They're somebody I've usually become quite close with as well. So there's obviously a layer of feeling incredibly sad for them. I mean, that's just basic empathy. I think most people have that apart from 1% of society who are. Yeah. <laughs> so you have that, but I, again, I, I think there's no point talking on, on a podcast like this unless you're entirely honest and i think most presenters would say the same thing as me most journalists and i'm sure you felt this way sometimes as well that if the person you're interviewing becomes emotional you know it's good tv and if, if this is a project that you could be working on for two or three years and you're looking to get a great scene so you're balancing in your mind this feeling of just feeling awful for them and also this feeling of like wow this is going to be entertaining and you obviously you try and shut that side off at the time but I'm, i know it's there and it, it it makes me feel a little bit hypocritical, but I'm not sure how else you can make these documentaries. So what do you reach for in those moments? Do you reach for a concept like the greater good or the, the, the public benefit that will come from other people seeing this and the good that that might do? It's very tough to know. I mean, again, I just, I do want to be honest. And a lot of making documentaries to me is about entertainment. And I know that's not a popular thing to say. People want to hear, I'm a journalist and I'm doing this for activist reasons. Now that is a huge part of it. That I saw so I made about an exorcist, a film about an exorcist. Um, I was going to come on to that, actually. Let's come on to that hmm. now, because that is a really interesting example, a bit like the abortion one, actually, is that this this exorcist is doing incredible harm. You, you, you made a, a, a documentary, which I think actually did expose that completely. So, so, so this is the thing. I think there's activism and then there's documentary making, right? And documentary making is entertainment. That's why people watch documentaries. They want to be informed, but if they want to be informed, they can read a book or whatever, which also has to be entertaining, of course. But it, The Exorcist was perfect for me. It was just the most perfect subject for me to do because it had that right balance. So it felt like I was doing something I really cared about because I was always, I've always been so against dogmatic thinking, really hated this stuff. And 
I, you know, I could see that this guy, I kept seeing him on TV. I was living in Argentina for six years and I saw him on TV and everybody there, the journalist just took him completely at his word and they put him on TV and he talked about all the magic that he did and whatever. And I just thought there's something he's doing. I don't know yet. There's something he's doing, which is horrible. I just had that feeling. So it was a very good example of like, okay, I can do some good and expose it and show the world and stuff. But I would be lying if I said that that was it. Would that was my only motivation? I also wanted to be able to make a cool documentary. I also wanted to make something really entertaining. So exorcism was ideal because what's more entertaining than that? The only thing was when we first did an exorcism, and we went in, and I've seen exorcism done on like Vice and stuff like that, and it always seemed yeah. sort of funny. It's it's really strange because you mention exorcism to someone, they'll probably you know start smiling like, oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you're there. And we went in there, it was going to be very 90s Louis, uh, my director, David Hayes, and I. Uh, David's brilliant. And he, you know, so he, he flew out to Argentina to make this because we were so sure we wanted to do it. And yeah, we thought this is going to be me. I'm going to do something silly and I'm going to perform the exorcism with these, with these people and it's going to be funny. Right. And after like 10 minutes, you look down and you see this young girl. Well, in the first time was a woman who was, you know, 30 or so in just the most vulnerable awful position and suddenly it was like oh my god i'm standing here ringing bells i was taking part in the exorcism because i thought it was funny and it dawned on me very suddenly and very quickly uh that this was a very serious situation and i shouldn't be making fun of it i shouldn't be mocking it this isn't right so so you know and it was a form of abuse really it was yeah i mean that that's the message that comes across clearly i think from from that documentary and what you've said about it in the past yeah, yeah. So there's definitely that side. You want to do that. You don't want to make it to something that's just entertainment because what's that? That's not a great documentary. And you don't, I don't personally, I'm not interested in things that are just worthy for, for me to make. That They can be done by other people. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in entertainment as well, I think. And that's just my honest assessment. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. I'd like to learn a little bit about what your attitude is towards the the concept of controversy and of some issues being almost untouchable. Um, you know, today there are so few taboos in talking about almost anything, but one of your investigations and interviews that people might have heard touches on probably the biggest remaining taboo even to, to talk about, um, which is this question of paedophilia. And you actually have spoken with a paedophile as part of your work. Could you tell us why you chose to get into that topic? Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's, it's probably the biggest and, and only remaining total taboo that there is. Uh, I don't like taboos of any kind. Uh, what's really interesting is like, I mean, you know, the worst thing you can probably call someone, the worst thing in the world, if you wanted to hurt someone, you wanted to hurt them, you know, their work and everything like that would be paedophile. There's no, there's nothing that I can't think of anything. Even Nazi doesn't come close. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'd done this exorcist film. I just finished filming. Then I made this abortion film. And then my girlfriend and I moved to Berlin 
because she's Argentine and she was able to get a working holiday visa in Berlin. So we were able to move here where we are now. We've been here a couple of years. Um, and my first thought is, okay, what's the next project? You know, the big project, which is going to be a documentary or whatever it might be. So I look around Berlin and I'm typing in on Google and searching everywhere. What's the, what's the interesting thing here? And the interesting thing, of course, is Nazis and, uh, and communists as well. And there's a whole big thing in Berlin and Germany. And that was reasonably interesting to me, but sort of been done a bit. And then I found out that they have a, um, a clinic here that is the only of its, only one of its kind in the world, I think which is called don't offend and basically they don't report pedophiles no matter what they've done uh who pedophiles who are their patients in therapy to authorities right so in the uk any therapist would be struck off for failing to report a pedophile to authorities in the us it would go even further they would be arrested the same in australia you'd go to jail for failing to report a pedophile to police so it's obviously very controversial and they argue that the whole point is that's how they cut that's that's how we get them to come in and if we can stop them from abusing children then we've done quite an amazing job you know so it's complicated so i started writing a book and i've written the whole book now and i got it to a literary agent and it's just all about the different people i've met i've been meeting loads of different pedophiles just last month i met a a woman who's 25 I should point out that most of these people I've met are non-offenders. So that's what they tell me, that they have never I and see. never. Yeah, I'm not hanging around with the types who, who just say it's okay. Even for me. So these are people who've, who've identified these feelings in themselves and, and, and want to hmm. not feel that way or, 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 or not, not act on those feelings. Yeah, it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting you, you put it that way because it's not that they don't want to feel that way. This is one of the most amazing, uh-huh. fascinating things that I learned about these these people, mostly men. Uh, they do want to restrain themselves. They do insist they would never do it. They do say that they understand that this would ruin a child's life. Most of them say that, um, but most of them also say that they, if given the choice, they wouldn't change because they see that as their part of their personality and they see it as you know if you took that away it wouldn't be them anymore and it's a really strange kind of thought process that they go through it is isn't it i mean that because it almost seems obscene that someone would feel that way and, and and not want to not feel that way yeah and that's and that's the problem so i've met loads of these people and it, it's all good what they're telling me uh and the first time i met one a pedophile you know and these are these are people you know so it's it's such an awkward thing and i've i've also become it's been two years now so i've become desensitized a little bit to the subject so i don't know if people listening are, are going to be like ah i can't listen to this uh, i'm not that i'm about to describe anything horrific but well it, it sort of is but the first time i met a guy uh the, the the clinic put me in touch and he sent me an email um and he said hi my name is max it's not his real name um he didn't i've no i don't have any of their real names or details and he said, uh, I can meet you today if you want. Uh, I'm at this address. So I looked at the address and it turned out it was a public swimming pool. So I was like, oh my God. And I wasn't yet, of course, desensitized to this. So I was like, heart, my heart was in my mouth. It was, And as I cycled closer and closer to this pool to meet him, I was just like, you know, I, I don't think I've ever felt that way. I was so scared, not entirely sure what I was scared of, but scared. And I got into this pool setting and I saw, you know, he said, I'm wearing a blue hat and a blue whatever. And I saw him and he was holding the hand of a little girl. So I was like, oh my, I don't, I don't, I've, you know, I was shaking. 
you know and it's a strange thing because your legs shake in a way that you know evolutionarily i don't know how that helps you escape a tiger or whatever because i could hardly move um and i got chatting to him and i i thought right something there's something odd here because obviously he's who's this little girl so i said to her are you his daughter is this your daddy and she said no and then she went off and got some ice cream or whatever it was and just as i was about to ask him so who was the little girl and the thing was i i didn't want to push too hard because I didn't have his name. The clinic didn't have his real name. Um, and the, if he is abusing and he senses that I'm suspicious, I've lost him. And he'll just go off and do whatever and I won't be able to get him. And I thought, I have to play this very carefully if he's abusing someone, you know. And just as I was about to sort of eventually ask him, two other little girls, about 11 years old, walked over and they were saying, oh, hi, you know, Max or whatever, can you can can we have some ice cream? And he's like, yeah, here's some money for ice cream. So I was like flabbergasted. And I asked him what's going on. And he said, oh, I'm babysitting these these children. And I, I could not believe this was happening. It was my first, the first pedophile I'd met. And I said, like, you, you can't think that that's appropriate though, can you? Again, not wanting to scare him off. And he said, no, well, the, the, the woman, the mother knows knows very well that I'm a pedophile and that I can control my urges and I'm fine with it and she's fine with it. So I don't see what the problem is. You know, I thought he'd made that up and uh, it had a deep effect on me. I was really, I was not myself for a couple of weeks after that. And I kept thinking, have I done something wrong by meeting him? Is there more I can do? I don't know. And I pushed and pushed and eventually he let me meet the mother. And she was basically, I went around her house and she was this ultra left wing woman Um, she works with uh, all sorts of different groups, um, you know, very, uh, what was, you know, woke, I suppose, what's a better word for woke? Very like caring about lots of different groups, you know, somebody probably with a very good heart. And one of the groups that she cares about and says needs more attention to it are non-offending pedophiles. And again, I was just shocked because I was going, I get the point, I get the theory, but it's not your place it's your children you're risking. It's not your life. It's their life. He's taking them through swimming pool changing rooms. It was it was just horrific. Anyway, from that I I started writing a book, and I wrote I've finished the book, and it's you know hopefully I'll be able to try and sell it at some point. Um, I have you. I mean, you've you've you, through through that project, you've obviously spent time with like you've said some of the people who whose feelings are you know unthinkable to most of us and mm. and you know <clears throat> yeah quite upsetting even to think about um did that and an extreme you know right this seems like an extreme yeah. um uh, phenomenon did it could could you take any general lessons from it i mean did it did it teach you anything about the 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 nature of controversy or beliefs about people's self-knowledge or self-control i mean were there any generalizable lessons that you that you learned for your own beliefs and values from oh yeah spending time with those people and and, oh, and maybe you yeah. could say what they were if so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much so much i mean if we were talking before about what i get aside from being able to have a book or a documentary which is you know a lot of journalists like to have you know it's a cool thing to have it's how you have a career so that's great but in terms of talking about you know what you learn from meeting these people what i was talking about before what i'm able to learn from learning different languages and meeting different kinds of people and absorbing a lot of it 
not that I would want to absorb their attraction to children, of course, but I mean, learning from Understanding what they're saying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so firstly, that point before about how they tend to be proud of their attraction, despite knowing that it's wrong to ever act out on it. That blew my mind, right? Um, And then looking at cognitive... Do you think that's just an unavoidable part of being human? I mean, most people don't think there's anything wrong with them. You know, they think that, and they wouldn't change much, you know, I mean, the the question, if you ask most people, you know, would you go back and change, you know, yourself and say that this thing happened rather Mm. than that happened? Most people say no, right? And that sort of makes sense because unless you hate yourself, no one is going to, you're not going to say, oh yeah, I wish I was completely different because you've come to terms with yourself, haven't you, in, in, in order to go on living. It's a question I so ask. That's generalizable. <clears throat> I, I ask guests on my podcast this all the time when they've been, uh, they've grown up in a certain religion, an extreme religion, or or they might have something like uh, schizophrenia or be a psychopath, that kind of thing. And I've asked all these different kinds of people, like, would you change your upbringing? Would you have? Would you make the schizophrenia go away? Uh, a, even even a, a woman who was the first uh, blind radio presenter for BBC One, Lucy Edwards shocked me because she said i've come to terms with it and i wouldn't change it now and i was going what you wouldn't have your sight back and she was going she was going like well, maybe i don't think so because it's not me i think it's very hard of us for hard for it's like we're playing a game and we're halfway through it and now we're saying well let's change all the characteristics of the yeah, player yeah it's not you anymore so that was amazing so you learned something about that about that even in the most extreme situations yeah. where your instincts and beliefs in the sense case these pedophiles are so at odds with what you know is right you still don't human beings still don't want to change themselves they don't and then unfortunately what comes with that that desire to place yourself as the hero of your own story which everybody has also comes you know the 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 desire to make yourself the victim it's very similar to the hero of your own story so a lot of them feel very victimized and a lot of them use extreme cognitive bias to to tell themselves. So the guy I had on my podcast is an eighteen year old called Silas. Again, it's not his, it's probably not his real name. He is the head boy of his school somewhere in Germany, uh, but we you know spoke in English. And he said to me that he would never abuse a child. And I said, "But you're around them so often." And he said, "Yes, I have to be. If I wasn't around children so often, then I would abuse more often." And I said, but that doesn't make sense because if you were away from them, you couldn't possibly abuse them. And he was saying, oh, Andrew, you don't understand. If I'm nearer them, I'm less likely to offend. And that was just, he wouldn't budge on that. And that is so clear, a cognitive bias, and he couldn't budge. So I suppose this comes out of everything you've said in all of your work, but it seems that a pretty fundamental belief for you is that we've got to wade into these controversial subjects. We've got to try to understand people and find the truth because if we don't then we can't solve the problems yeah i think that's what it is i I think you can apply that to anything i think you can apply that to politics if i I speak to friends of mine who are in areas where they're just constantly surrounded by very uh you know left-wing or woke people and it can move them further right and then again if you're i got a friend another friend of mine who's just around a lot of quite right-wing people and he's moved further left because he it changes your view of society and I think when people feel like they're not being listened, so I've gone into two, you know what, ignore that. I've gone into two different points. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Encounters with difference, enjoying people, understanding people, compromise, anti-dogmatism, the nature of being human. Andrew Gold, thank you for telling us what you believe. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
That was Andrew Gold telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the eighth episode of the third season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. 